Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Why learn brain science at all when you could just be studying the Bible? Science can be manipulated, can't it? Aren't we better off with God's revelation? Well, today we're going to be talking about common objections to integrating neuroscience and faith. My name is Jeff Holzklaw, and this is the Being With podcast on neuroscience and faith, and it's produced by Grassroots Christianity, which is seeking to grow faith for everyday people. So today we're welcomed by Ed Curry, who is the president and co-founder of Equipping Hearts for the Harvest, a ministry empowering leaders and missionaries and churches to serve locally and globally. He teaches and writes workshops and trainings at the intersection of God's grace, neuroscience, and spiritual formation. Ed, it's so great to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, you have been doing lots of trainings um, yes. about uh, for over a decade, I think, uh, and you've written some books. One that I've really enjoyed is called Joy Starts Here, which you co-authored with a couple different people. Uh, but you have run into some common objections uh, from <laughs> well-meaning pastors or church boards uh, just about this whole, like, what can um, neuroscience or what can um, counseling or therapy or brain science, like, can, can it really help people? <clears throat> so we're going to spend some time with some common objections. Uh, if you are watching online live, please, uh, in uh, Facebook or YouTube, write some of your own questions or objections that you've heard. Uh, as you were trying to maybe offer some of these things to your church bodies, and maybe we can answer some of those too. But really quickly, how did you get into uh, this brain science stuff? How did you start thinking that maybe it was important for spiritual formation? What was just a little bit of that journey for you? Um, I worked with hurting people in addictions and trauma and their families for many, many years. And, um, if you've been in the field of addictions for any length of time, you kind of figure out that um, recovery process and the tools we use don't work as well as we, what we'd like people to think. Um, relapse rates can be as high as um, 75%, um, percent, and that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, in the back of my mind, I was always thinking there's got to be a better way to do things. So in... in 2003, I was invited by a friend of mine to uh, go to a a trauma conference in Canada. And um, the main speaker there was a guy named Jim Wilder, Dr. Jim Wilder. And I'd never heard him speak before, but when he explained um, a lot about new imaging techniques for the brain and how different regions of the brain work together to do different things... Um, I was sitting there thinking, okay, this guy just explained (laughs) what was wrong with what we were doing and what we needed to do to make it work better. 
Now, because I'm also a minister, I'm really interested in how do you disciple people, especially if they've been hurting, but just people in general. So I followed up with Jim. Um, he gave me a very long reading list. <laughs> which, which I should Jim, get that reading list from you. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. Some of it was read this and keep a dictionary by your side. <laughs> I mean, it was, but, um, I began to understand, um, God's relational design for the brain and how different regions of the emotional and relational control center work together. Mm -hmm. Um, understanding that helped me understand why, um, relapse was so common but it also was prescriptive. It described what was wrong, but it prescribed some solutions. And I began to incorporate those into the work I did. And in um, the process, I began to develop some new approaches to um, addiction um, and um, how do you create healthy community in churches, um, ministries. Um, Jim and I worked on a lot of that together, and that kind of led up to the Joy Starts Here book. Yeah, and we've had uh, Maribeth Poole on to talk about attachment and the different levels of the brain. And we've had Jim on um, to talk about spiritual formation and, and these types of things. And, um, you know, I, I run in some like charismatic Christian circles, you know, and they always talk about like the prophet who started the movement. And, and Jim Wilder kind of is like, you know, he's the, the guy that a lot of people refer back to, which is great. But yeah, I had a friend who, um, you know, struggled with addiction and he, he did, he died of an overdose uh, mm -hmm. on, a, on a relapse. And I remember his dad saying, oh, like, I guess the Jesus thing didn't stick. And that mm -hmm. like really broke my heart of like, oh yeah. And I think a lot of us have that where it's like, well, many people, mm -hmm. you know, the, the man who passed away, you know, we had just baptized him a month before. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we have these struggles, like how how do our discipleship models not quite fit the recovery or the trauma or the addiction kind of life? And not just that, that's kind of the extreme examples, but then just like all of us as we struggle and we're processing our life histories and these types of things. And it seems that um, whether it's family systems therapy, whether it's uh, neurolinguistic kind of things, whether it's just regular couples therapy, that there's tools out there um, <laughs> that people find uh, that they find to be really helpful and then they want to bring them back into the church, but then there's like resistance. Yeah. So I want us to cover what those resistances are and kind of where they come from. And you've <laughs> done a lot of training, so you kind of come up with a lot of this stuff. So maybe you can kind of help us go through it. The, the first one that I think sometimes uh, happens in churches that you mentioned, so you, I'm just going off this list, I, I'm prompting you here, is uh, he prepared beforehand, which is good. You're a great <laughs> guest. Uh, is he said that a lot of churches mistake uh, the idea that more information will lead to spiritual transformation. And so if we just do more Bible studies or if we do more and better preaching series, uh, get them some books and training or online videos, that that will transform people. So can you fill out that objection and kind of how you've maybe talked to people about that? <clears throat> well, First, I want to be really clear. I'm not being critical of pastors because I think they have the hardest job in the world. And I have the utmost respect for them. Um, and I don't want to throw shade at them. Mm, um, absolutely. People tend to do what they've been trained to do. I mean, you work out of the toolbox with the tools you've been given. Mm. And pastors are no different than anybody else in that regard. Um, 
it's been a part of Western thought for centuries that um, information is the most important thing that people need to grow as disciples. The the idea is if you give people good information, they will um, use logic and reason and exercise their will to choose according to the good information. Um, so we've become a culture that almost worships information and is enamored with the idea that if we just give people the right information, that they will make great decisions and choose to follow Jesus constantly. Now, there's nothing wrong with information, but um, part of the problem is information doesn't change anybody. Um, me learning how to cook hamburgers at McDonald's does not make me a cook. Um, me studying recipes, even though how good they are, they don't make me a cook. There's a relational part um, to God's design for us that is absolutely more critical than good information. Um, and that really gets into the whole area of attachment theory or um the people that we love the most have the greatest impact on our behavior. Hmm. Um, Jesus said it like this, if you are loving me, you will be keeping my commandments. So in the context of a growing relationship with him and with his people, behaviors start to change. He didn't say, if you study and learn good information about me, you will be keeping my precepts. He just said, if you're loving me, which implies a relational God and a relational gospel from the beginning, um, as that relationship gets closer, we will have a tendency then to do the same kinds of things that Jesus did. Mm. So I think one of the reasons brain science, our approach is rooted heavily in brain science, um, um, pastors have a difficult time with those is because the approach that brain science uses, which is um, a relational foundation to things, flies totally contrary to their teaching about what is important for making disciples. Um, mm. If the highlight of the week for discipleship making is the Sunday sermon, for example, gosh, that you got one shot um, at people a week. And um, statistics show that or research shows that we can forget, I think, 90-some percent of what we hear within 24 hours. So if information is the primary way we're trying to make disciples, because that's what we've been trained to do, and we get one shot once a week, um, only a very small percentage of that is retained. And it's really no wonder there's not more character transformation. But pastors mm -hmm. are doing what they've been trained to do because we've relied on a faulty paradigm of um, reason, intellect, logic, and will as the key ingredients to making better disciples. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I myself am a seminary-trained professor, or, well, I'm a professor, but I'm a seminary-trained pastor first. And, you know, you said, like you, you can only use the tools that you've been given. Um, and so if you've just been given a hammer, right, you know, everything looks like a nail, as they say. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, most pastors have been trained to study, study the Bible. Uh, and they probably did that because they already liked doing that. So they just want to bring everybody to that. And that's great. I'm a fan of studying the Bible. I just want everybody to know. I want people to study the Bible more. So, but 
information by itself doesn't really transform people. It doesn't give them better willpower. Um, but what does, as you already hinted at it, is most pastors misunderstand the importance of relationships for transformation. Certainly, we usually, you know, encourage people to stop hanging out, you know, when there's that, you know, that kid in the youth group who was saved. And it's like, hey, you need to not be around those friends, mm-hmm. push, pushing the drugs on you and all that other stuff. Like, you need better friends. Right. So that's usually just getting rid of like the worst friendships. But they don't, I think, is it true that most pastors undervalue the positive impact that relationships have? And they usually just rely on just teaching. Um, I don't want to say most pastors. I know some <laughs> pastors do. You are so generous. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I, I, lo- I love pastors because mm. they have such a hard yeah. job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think um, the relational piece gets um, gets missed. You know, a disciple in Jesus's time was somebody that followed their master around and literally um, with the dust, his feet kicked up. <laughs> so you get the notion that discipleship originally was a very dusty business because it mm-hmm. meant you were so that close to someone. Um, and Jesus was pretty clear. If you read the new Testament, the idea that, um, you know, community is essential for transformation. Um, we tend to read, um, Paul's use of the word you as meaning singular, but in most cases, when he's talking to a church, it's a plural. Yeah, you <laughs> in other all. Words, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> I live in the South. It's y'all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's absolutely, I think, right. And, and too often, uh, back to the tools that uh, pastors have been given, is here in the West, we've been given Bible studies tools that are particularly Western. Uh, And so they are rational and individualistic. And so when we're reading the text, we're not looking for the communal, Mm -hmm. uh, the relational or the emotional aspects that are there in the text. And we're kind of forgetting the communal, relational and emotional uh, vibrancy that was probably a part of Jesus's teaching, you know? And so we read things like uh, Matthew's gospel you know, the Great Commission, you know, go out and make disciples by teaching them all mm-hmm. that I've commanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and then people go back and say, oh, it's a Sermon on the Mount and these, you know, these types, which are great. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a fan of all that. Uh, but we oftentimes miss those other much more richer and relational kind of aspects of the whole story of Jesus, you know, and not just Jesus, of course, but of God's work with humanity mm-hmm. and all these types of things. So, um, one of the other ones that you mentioned, and I think this is an important one, is that people have difficulty with the idea of attaching with God in some mm-hmm. fashion. Uh, and part of that is probably because it's like a little emotional and ooey gooey. The other part is because it requires like a real time interaction. And so can yes. you can you get at that? That um, Can you kind of unpack that like to attach? What does it mean to attach to God? And why might kind of our um, Western Christian habits find that difficult to enter into? Um, Okay. Attachment um, refers to um, a, the the development of a long-term deep abiding connection with someone. And um, it is, it is that relationship is maintained, grows and remains true over time. That's really what attachment is. Um, There are many different types of, um, ways that people attach, many different attachment styles. But in essence, 
um, attachment is just the development of that long-term enduring relationship that stands true over time. Um, if Jesus is interested in us learning to love him and to love God and to love each other, which is the essence of, um, I think, all the law Jesus Jesus mentioned, um, that means that a relationship with the person I'm forming that kind of attachment with is essential. I can read, um, for example, if my wife was in another country, we could write each other letters and I could learn about her from the letters. But forming an attachment is something that happens in person in the context of interactions generally that are face-to-face or, or extremely close. Um, part of the reason um, pastors can be resistant to brain science or attachment theory is it opens the whole can of worms. It says, well, does God actually speak to people today or not? Mm-hmm. Um from my perspective, it's pretty impossible to form an attachment with somebody that is constantly silent, mm. uh, especially someone that's silent and invisible. <laughs> um, uh, so I think, um, and this is a huge theological can of worms, which I don't really want to open, except <laughs> to say growing a strong attachment with someone which is foundational for um, loving and changing behaviors requires direct interaction. Mm-hmm. Whether that interaction comes um, as we're pondering scripture together or um, whether we're just having a conversation, um, interpersonal interaction is foundational. And of course, new age stuff messes this up to no end. And um, pastors have learned to be very suspicious of things that sound, you know, quote unquote, new agey. Um, The fact that new age uses something that um, has been a practice in the church for centuries does not invalidate the practice of the church. Um, It just means they've found out something, have glommed onto it, and are putting their own spin on it. But the idea of interactive prayer with God has been in, in, in. in the church since Jesus was present. I mean, this is not a new idea. Hmm. Yeah. Amen. Uh, the, the idea of interacting with God can be a hurdle uh, for, for people from certain traditions who feel <laughs> that whether it's um, the liturgical kind of structure of the church that is mediated by priests um, is kind of where God's activity is to be found um, you know, that might be the more high church or Catholic or something like that. And then they're kind of, you know, I think more Baptist or fundamentalist, you know, I was raised Baptist fundamentalist, um, who just think, you know, God spoke in the Bible and now his speaking is finished because <laughs> the true word has been spoken. Um, but I think that even in the, those views, um, we can find interactive glimmers of God. So <laughs> even if I'm reading scripture, um, if my mind goes back to uh, a place in my life, uh, that then connects with the scripture that I'm reading. That for me is God talking to me and linking right. things from his text in my life or the reverse. If I'm contemplating my life uh, in a prayerful manner or asking for God's help and wisdom and a, uh, a verse of scripture or a story comes to mind, then that for me is part of the interacting experience, <laughs> interactive experience with God. And so um, if you're not, you know, more of the, yeah, I hear God's voice when I pray or uh, I pray, 
journal, you know, or the charismatic Pentecostal, I speak in tongues or all like, you don't have to go to all those places to, in some small ways say, yeah, God is interacting with me. And that's part of how I attach with them. And so I think sometimes people don't, they have such a, a weird view of what it means for God to interact with them or to speak to them, or they have kind of a very wooden kind of like, well, either God is speaking to you and that's uh, happening or it's not happening. Or if God <laughs> speaks to us, then it invalidates all of scripture. It's like, okay, well, let's, right. let's bring that down. I know you weren't going to bring all this up, but I'm going to bring it up. So there we go. So I was just throwing some of that interactive presence and in, cause it is, it is very important. And it, and the more we do that kind of in private, um, in devotional life, small groups and safe places, then, um, the more that that happens, um, in real time, as you said, and others have been saying, the more that we can catch up to the speed of, of life. <laughs> well, good. So um, there's one or two more here that I want to hit. But uh, if there's any others that are just coming to mind, feel free to jump in. And the other one is that um, most pastors or church leaders, they lack training <laughs> in brain science. Uh, maybe they had, I know I had just one pastoral counseling, uh, but it didn't really deal with brain, right? It just dealt with a couple techniques and things like that. So either their um, leaders, church leaders are undertrained, and so they just don't have an overwork, so they don't have the ability to catch up to it. Or, you know, certain traditions are actively suspicious of <laughs> psychology and things like that. Um, and so there is kind of a hard kind of ramp to, to climb. Are there uh, a couple other things that have jumped to mind that you're like, oh yeah, people struggle with this too, since we've been talking? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think a really huge one is, um, especially if someone's not been trained with these concepts, um, asking them to speak neuroscience language is absurd. <laughs> Frankly, it's absurd. <laughs> it would be my it would be like me telling you I just found the greatest um, way to make disciples in the world, but all the key concepts were in Chinese, and you don't understand Chinese. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, neuroscience uh, neuroscientists don't write to pastors and Christians in general. They're writing neuroscience, and they have no um, intent of trying to make it user friendly for people that don't speak their language in general. Right. Um, so, trying to um, ask pastors who are unfamiliar with terms concepts. Um, to embrace something that's a foreign language outside of their training um, is just absurd. Right. Um, and honestly, it's incumbent on the person talking about brain science to use language um, and help dot the I's and cross the T's. Um, because the idea that, well, I proposed this and they just didn't want to hear about it, it um, I'm like, well, what language did you use? <laughs> right. If you spoke Chinese, of course, if they they don't get it, they're not gonna they're not gonna pay attention to you. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, I think uh, I was kind of thinking of this episode today on the podcast to be maybe encouragement and to build understanding for people who are uh, therapists in a church, for people who are seeking recovery or uh, recovery ministries, uh, people who have been to therapy, um, 
and or recovery and these types of things and have gotten these resources but have felt resistance or walls or misunderstanding when bringing them to ministry leaders and pastors uh, and, and just trying to kind of build a kind of a two-way conversation. Well, there's reasons why a lot of Western trained you know, pastors aren't immediately receptive to these things, mm-hmm. um, especially in the moderate to the conservative kind of end of uh, Christianity in the West. Um, and then... Um, hopefully the resources you're developing, you know, podcasts like this, uh, and others, you know, can start building those bridges. And I know that your work actually took a shift. And so we're actually going to have Ed on again to talk about how his work has shifted a little bit to kind of maximize that bridge building, um, and to kind of make it most effective in the circles that he's in. So we're really excited to have you, uh, back to kind of fill out kind of the next iteration of your work. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is the being with podcast where we're seeking to learn how to be with ourselves, how to be with others and how to be with God uh, and how faith and neuroscience can work together to do those different things. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, uh, Facebook, uh, and all other places that you can find podcasts and videos. So please check those out, subscribe. And in the show notes, we also have a link to our Being With community where you can get emails and updates. Uh, and as we get a little further along, hopefully this community can be more collaborative where we can share resources and things like that where you won't be at the mercy of these online algorithms. So Ed, <laughs> thanks again for being here. We really appreciate it. You are very welcome. It was a pleasure. And we'll talk to you all next time.